0: We are going to talk now about junk science of 911 call analysis. Yes, you heard me, right? We're joined by Brett Murphy, an investigative journalist with ProPublica. His latest piece is called They Called 911 for Help. Police and prosecutors used a new junk science to decide they were liars. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, Kat. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us and for this uh, heavy-hitting piece. Uh, Let's start with Tracy Harpster. Who is he? Uh, so Tracy is,
1: is a former deputy police chief from a suburban Dayton, in Ohio. Uh, he retired a few years ago, but before he did, um, he developed, with the help of some others, um, something called 911 call analysis. He, he conducted the first study uh, behind it, and then he turned that study into a training curriculum in consultation business. Uh, nationwide, even though it started in Ohio, uh, it's been used around the country. And basically, um, his, his program centers on this idea that there are ways someone should and shouldn't speak and behave on a 911 call when they are reporting an emergency. He claims that one in three callers reporting a death are actually a murderer um i found no statistic to to back up that number no uh no evidence to back up that number but uh this idea that that he's promoted and that he sells is um you know there are certain guilty indicators he calls them and these guilty indicators range sort of everything from from misplacing a word like please being too polite uh, things like that, you know, turns of phrase, certain omissions—all these things are, are what he calls indicators of guilt. And those who take his training from from detectives to prosecutors, coroners, they can use that to build cases around people who call 911, and they and they have done that, in fact.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Was around the words or phrases that his system—I'm I'm using air quotes around the word system—would say points to guilt. You thought you mentioned the word, you know, that he started out uh, his career his business. Tell us how he got uh, a leg up on this path.
1: So, yeah. So it's really interesting. So he he went to the FBI National Academy uh, in 2004. The National Academy invites local police from around the country, uh, for a 10 week training session with some of the instructors, uh, at Quantico there, he met someone named Sue Adams. She was an agent at the time and she taught, uh, the principles of statement analysis. This idea again, that there are certain verbal cues that give away, uh, or betray someone's actual involvement. You can, if you pick up enough of these cues, you can determine that they're being deceptive. There's been a body of research around statement analysis that has called into question a lot of the claims around the tenets of, of such a discipline, especially in how it's been applied in law enforcement settings. But, but Harpster was wrapped, Tracy was wrapped by that, uh, by that idea, by the discipline. He goes back to Ohio, he enrolls in a graduate program uh, to get his master's in criminal justice, and there he collects 100 911 calls, mostly from Ohio. Two-thirds of them came from Ohio, and two-thirds of the 911 callers were white. And from there, he sort of came up with this, this list of indicators, things people should and shouldn't say. Other examples are like, you know, if you say the word somebody, if you say um, I need help instead of I need help for you know, my, my son. These are all the guilty indicators that, that he decided uh, were, were indicative of someone being deceptive or guilty of, of a crime. Once he published the thesis, he and Adams, who he had met at the FBI, uh, got it into an FBI law enforcement bulletin, which immediately legitimized it. That was sent to law enforcement around the country. From there, law enforcement started calling him for consultations. From the consultations, he got more consultations, and that turned into a full-scale, full-fledged training curriculum, usually taxpayer-funded. They go from anywhere now around you know, $3,500 for the eight-hour class. So it's, it's turned into a full-fledged business over the course of 10 years.
0: Let's walk through some of the stories uh, in, in your article, and let's start with Russ Faria.
1: Yeah, so Russ, Russ Faria was, uh, it was a really interesting case for a number of reasons, but what what I thought was sort of most telling about it, uh, most newsworthy about it, were the communications from uh, the prosecutor who, who prosecuted Faria twice. It's really rare and it's really hard often to see how, DAs, how assistant prosecutors strategize, how they go about leveraging certain pieces of evidence, uh, those, a lot of those records are often really difficult to get, especially, you know, down the line or especially in the midst of, of a case. What we had in the Faria case was a man who had been charged and then convicted of killing his wife in Missouri. He had an alibi Uh, but there was enough circumstantial evidence to convict him. And what Leah Askey did, she was the prosecutor uh, on the case, was write to Harpster years later. He had come to her uh, soliciting an endorsement of 911 call analysis. He knew she had used it in at least a couple cases. And he asked her, hey, can you write me, uh, you know, uh, an email that I could use, uh, for the book I'm working on. And those endorsements, he also turns into marketing when he's pitching, when he's pitching his program to other law enforcement agencies. And uh, when she wrote to him, she said, here's how I've used it. And she kind of laid out in pretty startling detail with candor, uh, that she knew, it wouldn't be admissible as science or expert testimony. And she explained how she circumvented the court's rules for admitting that type of evidence uh, by disguising it as something else. By uh, you know, A lot of the experts said it's disguising it as lay testimony instead of expert testimony. And that became a pattern we saw in a bunch of other cases where prosecutors kind of developed this playbook, the same playbook. What she didn't mention in those emails uh, was that Faria had... Been exonerated. He he was acquitted uh, after a second trial, where she had tried using the nine one one call analysis, and he served three and a half years in prison for something he didn't commit. Uh, that to me was a really telling case and a really important sort of look inside the justice system, especially uh, how prosecutors were using this nine one one call analysis.
0: Another interesting case, and it caught my eye because. Quiet as as it's kept. I actually watch true crime stories, which is sort of weird as a police accountability activist, but it's my guilty <laughs> pleasure. Uh, but that's how you describe the case of Jade Benning. Yeah, so Jade
1: Benning was another uh, really important case, I think. And here's why. You know, there's there's uh, cold cases all the time, right? We hear about them. We usually see headlines, like you said, Cat. They'll become. You know, true crime shows, they'll be yeah. turned into podcasts, you know, they, they, they circulate around the media pretty often, and, they're, and they can be gripping for a lot of reasons. You know, the, the narrative is usually, you know, someone was finally brought to justice after so many years, and, you know, it was kind of dogged police work that got us there. Uh, that's sort of how this case appeared. There was uh, a murder 26 years ago in Orange County, California, uh, and uh, it had gone cold. There was a, a break-in in the middle of the night. Uh, Chris Hervey um, had been stabbed, and her, uh, his, his girlfriend at the time, Jade Benning, had called 911 and said as much. Said there was a burglar came in, you know, slashed my hand. A neighbor saw someone running from the house at the time. They didn't find a murder weapon. Case went cold. 26 years go by. Then uh, headlines locally and nationally that Jade Benning was arrested for the murder. Uh, it was pretty opaque what exactly had happened. They mentioned an anonymous letter. Uh, the police department, Santa Ana Police Department, mentioned that there was new uh, quote I think forensic evidence. They called it uh, forensic consultations. I think they said too, uh, and that was it. And then the, you know there was n- nothing else explaining kind of what exactly led to led them to to Benning. Uh, but the cold case detective uh, who worked it, who uh, who worked the case wrote an email to Harpster right after her arrest saying listen we used it thanks so much for your help this helped convince the DA you know the 911 call analysis here helped convince the DA that we should bring charges and you know without you we wouldn't have been able to do it there, he alluded to some other stuff but he said you know this was a huge this was a huge deal in helping us uh, Uh, make this arrest. And that's something else you just often don't see. You often don't see kind of the behind the scenes of how these, these cold cases wrap up. And it really uh, kind of opened a window for us in the reporting as well.
0: Brett Murphy, what is it about the culture of policing, do you think, that allows junk science to take hold so hard and spread so fast?
1: Uh, That's an interesting question, and it's one I went um, to a lot of uh, the experts that uh, I was consulting with as I was reporting here. Uh, You know, a lot of them mentioned that there's kind of endemic credulity around law enforcement where um, they, you know, police detectives, prosecutors uh, will often be willing uh, or quick to embrace any new tool that will help them uh, you know, investigate or prosecute a case. And I should say that those who I spoke to inside of the law enforcement who defended the program say it's just that. This is best used as simply a tool. It's not the be-all, end-all. Um, it's not even concrete evidence, but it's just a tool. However, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people um, actually trying to introduce it as expert testimony in court, which is, which is evidence. And that does have a obvious material impact on a case's outcome. I think what it comes down to with this specifically, and this is, you know, after talking with all these these experts inside of law enforcement, inside of the research community, uh, statisticians, criminal justice experts, they said, you know, listen, there's a simplicity to this thing, to what 911 call analysis is. Uh, it's a it, It's a one-page checklist that they can just give, you know, th- those who take the training that they can use. While they're investigating, while they're prosecuting a case, it's really easy to understand. One-time harpster himself <laughs> said, "You know, he he said uh, DNA puts jurors to sleep, but they love uh, 911 call analysis because they like listening to the 911 audio. They have, I think, a lot of us as people." have, uh, you know, certain biases about what we think someone should or shouldn't sound like, what's what sounds normal, what sounds off. And if there's something that sounds like research or science or data behind it that can sort of justify those hunches, or legitimize uh, those those gut feelings, then I think there's a willingness to kind of run with it. So that's, that's how I came to understand it after talking with with all these people.
0: I mean, you know, clearly the article zeroes in on on, uh, linguistic detection. I can't really say that with a straight face. But um, as you were doing your research for this piece, were you able to compare and contrast it to other types of junk science that has taken hold inside of law enforcement? And if so, can you give us a couple of examples?
1: Uh, Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the one of the kind of most accessible uh, for me was uh, bloodstain. Pattern analysis, blood spatter analysis. Uh, my uh-huh. colleague, Pam Koloff at ProPublica, uh, has done kind of stunning work uh, on that. Uh, bite mark analysis was another one. Uh, th- these are things that have kind of been known in the criminal justice world for a few years now uh, to be unreliable and unproven for a, you know, a various number of reasons. Uh, what was kind of different about this uh, 911 call analysis was that it's kind of nascent. Uh, you know, it's we're talking really 10 years. It's been on the scene, and a lot of the uh, defense attorneys, public defenders, uh, even you know some judges, certainly the defendants in cases, they didn't know about it. They often learned about it for the first time in the courtroom uh, when I went to them asking about it. Uh, you know, in their own jurisdictions, they hadn't heard about it. And I think a lot of that comes down to uh, what I was sort of saying earlier, w- 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 how it's presented at, in court, how it's disguised as something else that it's not. Uh, it, for those reasons, it's, it's sort of spread uh, largely unseen by the public. Uh, so it was a little different than some of those other ones that that my colleagues have written about. Uh, so we were, it kind of felt like we were on the ground in real time sort of tracking it um, as it was, as it was moving around the justice system,
0: and you all, are, you're doing a follow up to this
1: piece, correct? Uh, we, we'll, I think we're going to keep reporting. You know, uh, okay. we're getting new, we're getting new tips as they come in, but we'll certainly, okay. we'll certainly be following any new information we get
0: that, that we should report on. Great, and we'll be following you and uh, Brett. Just to end our time together on a giggle, uh, what is Harpster's motto? Oh, he has. yet
1: uh, <laughs> he, he has a he has a few. Uh, I think he has. Police have but one master, the truth. Um, he, has the one. <laughs> said, he has said that a few times in lecture. And there's a detective from Wisconsin who wrote him an email and told him that uh, he hung the slogan up on his office wall.
0: Uh, all right, Brett Murphy, we will be uh, following this series and hopefully you'll come back on uh, to talk to us some more. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Kat, for having me. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawandisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area